We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. So as you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to flip your way over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's right after Romans, before 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. All right, I'm going to read our scripture portion for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I just thank you for everything you're going to do amongst us this morning. Father, I pray that you would set up an ambush for, for us, or where you would catch us off guard with your word and with your truth. I pray, Father, that you'd use me as your instrument. Uh, Father, you are skilled enough to play great guitar music with broken strings. And so, Father, I trust that you will use me. And, Father, I pray, more importantly, for each person here, that you, are, you would soften hearts and open minds, and that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be brooding over us in such a way that we would see Jesus and understand the truth of who he is and who we are and what this all means. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. My question for you this morning is, what does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? This is how I can work as a Bible teacher. I get stuck on the portions of scriptures that don't make sense to me. And then I'm stuck on them. And so I have to preach on them. So sometimes I end up preaching a lot on what I don't understand. And I'm sorry. And there you go. But um, that's a joke. But that's kind of how I work. I, I read and then the scripture says something that doesn't makes sense, which surprises me, and then I get stuck on it. And this is the thing that doesn't make sense to me. Paul says to the Corinthian church, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And I don't know if you've ever read the book of Acts before and what happened in the Apostle Paul's life, but he's not really the type of person that you would describe as weak and fearful and doing lots of trembling. Um, you know, there was this one time, for instance, here's a for instance, there's one time where he was preaching and everything was going really well, um, so well that they thought he and his friend were a god, and then they said, no, 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 we're not, and then a few minutes later, some other people came up and turned the crowds against them, and they tried to stone them to death, and after they 
they failed. They thought they, they'd killed him, and so they wandered off, and he survived it. He gets back up and goes back into the city. Okay, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Most people, if, if a, a rabid crowd tries to kill you, you don't kind of survive it and then go, okay, here we go again. That's just not normal. Um, he's been through, it seemed like, everything. Mobs wanting to kill him, people forming plots against him to kill him, shipwrecks. Um, anything that's happened to him has happened to him. And, and it's his mission to go throughout the entire north half of the Mediterranean, planting churches. So when he's writing this letter here and saying to this church, um, yeah, when I, was, when I came to you to preach and when I was working among you, my primary experience was uh, fear and feeling like I've got nothing and shaking. Like, oh no. Um, so so I'm, I'm captured, I'm captivated. What is going on here? Um, and then his response to being on mission for Jesus and feeling oh, oh, up, up past his head and out of his depths, his, mission, his response to feeling called to preach in a city, but his physical experiences of fear and trembling, his response is to decide that he was going to limit his entire ministry to just talking about Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. That, to me, is stunning. Okay? That's, that's like going in the wrong direction. So I, I have to pursue this. And so this morning, I just want to walk through, okay, how does Paul get to this place where he's sharing the story with the church that he was actually, despite all the power that was going around him, actually feeling so weak and so afraid all the time, and then he responded by just becoming um, only exclusive about just talking about Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, what was going on in the Corinthian church is that they were... um, starting to divide themselves in factions. The, the church was becoming disunified. The church was getting ready for having a few church splits. And what they were becoming disunified about is that they, people in the church were grouping themselves over kind of who was their favorite leader. So some people are saying, I follow Paul. Other people are saying, I follow this guy named Apollos. Other people are saying, I follow Peter. Um, and, and it had something to do with baptism. So I think what was going on was that um, the church was, had been baptized, or was full of Christians who had been baptized by different people. And so they were kind of, would be saying to each other, you know, Greg, you're a great guy and all, but you were only baptized by, by Paulus. I was baptized by the Apostle Paul, and he's raised people from the dead. So Paulus is good. He's a good teacher. He knows his Old Testament pretty well. But, you know, the Apostle Paul saw Jesus raised from the dead. So just to let you know, it's happening over here, and you're welcome to be our water boy kind of stuff. And so they were finding reasons to divide themselves. And uh, Paul wants to counteract this. And so if you want to put a name on their sin, it's kind of the sin of uh, the pride of comparison. Okay, So they're looking around the church, and they're finding ways to compare themselves to other Christians in a way that makes themselves feel great about themselves. And that's not uncommon. That, that's not uncommon at all. That's not uncommon at all. You know, um, people can walk in here on a Sunday morning and, you know, who's tallest, who's shortest, who's 
looks like their hair's done the best, who looks like their hair's not done the best, who looks like they've been hitting the gym, who looks like they haven't been hitting the gym, who's got the best behaved kids, who's got the worst behaved kids, uh, and, you know, all that stuff. Well, who looks like they've got the best marriage, who looks like they don't have the best marriage, who, who, who's in which community group? We could do community group things. Well, I made it into this community group, and that's the really good one, that's the spiritual one, that's the one that, you know, meets at Greg's house, and that's, that's going to be the best community group. I don't know if you've noticed. But then other people are in this community group. Well, we got this great leader in there, two people. And, you, and it's just not uncommon. Well, there you go. But it's not just that Paul wants to talk to a heart issue in a church and just say, hey, stop comparing and be happy with who God's made you. Um, what he actually sees going on is a rejection of who Jesus is in order to embrace a worldly way of thinking. And so he starts going after not just the comparison. He starts going after the fact that this church has no idea who Jesus really is. That's what he goes after. He goes, I see you guys doing this, and I could just address this, but the real issue is you have totally forgotten who Jesus is. And so what he does is he brings them to this reality um, that Jesus really is, by God's will, the biggest loser that ever lived. And if if, if he hadn't been raised from the dead, he would have just gone down in history as the biggest failure ever. Um, And this was in order to show the power of God. So, he draws kind of a couple different distinctions here. He talks about what Jews think would think about Jesus, and he talks about what Greeks think about um, Jesus. And Jesus is the biggest failure in the Jewish world, in a sense. Okay, so the Jewish people of that time were were waiting for the Messiah to show up so that he would lead them in victorious battle against the Romans. The Roman Empire ruled over the known world, and they were um, efficient and harsh. Okay, so they did a good job of ruling. Um, you could travel long distances on the roads because if anybody gave you a hard time, the Romans would probably just kill them. But they were harsh. Okay, and the Jewish people were living in the promised land and they were supposed to be ruling over it and they weren't supposed to be slaves to a Roman bunch of pagans. And so they were waiting for the Messiah to show up and perform signs such as destroying the Romans and bring them into victory. But instead, Jesus showed up, and he healed a bunch of people, which is great, but then he got himself hung on a tree until death. And what the Word of God says, the Old Testament law, and this is, this is God's Word, this wasn't a mistake, his Word was that if somebody died hanging on a tree, they were under the curse of God. So not only did Jesus not destroy the Romans, but he died cursed by God. He's total failure to be the Jewish Messiah. Not only that, but he died by crucifixion. And the crucifixion was a um, torture execution method, a method of killing somebody that was designed to prolong agony that was, I think, invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. That's what they say. But it wasn't just that it was meant to be excruciatingly painful, which it was. It was designed to be the most shameful, 
degrading way that someone could die. In the Roman world, they saved crucifixion for runaway slaves and ex- ex- insurrectionists. So the worst of the worst of the, the like worthless people, the most worthless people you could find, they got crucified. That was, it was reserved for them. And it was against the law to crucify a Roman. It was just too degrading, too humiliating. Um, it was just something you couldn't think about. That a Roman citizen would be crucified? No, no, it would be... It's just terrible. It's too terrible to think about. So here's Jesus. On the one hand, in a world full of Greeks who love wisdom and love the pride of wisdom and love showing off and looking hot, here is the gospel saying the world is saved through a crucified Messiah the most shameful, hateful death possible in both the Roman Greek eyes and the Jewish eyes. Here's your Jesus. Um, We have a hard time feeling this, okay? So let me help. Um, A few days ago, I guess it was a couple weeks ago now, there was a mass murder committed in Canada, out in Quebec. A guy walked into a mosque with an AK-47, and he's been arrested, and he's waiting for trial. I don't know if the trial started yet. Now, somebody who commits a mass murder is a pretty hated person, right? Like you would think about that and you'd be like, what a scumbag. And if, and they get, they deserve everything they've got coming to them. If they get their, if they, you know, hung themselves in prison, good riddance. If they get killed by other prisoners, let me give them a medal. You know, that is a hateful person and whatever they they get is what belongs to them. They, they deserve it. That's the kind of death Jesus deserved. He, he died, sorry, he died. He died the kind of death where people would just instinctively hate him for it and despise him for it and be like, it was just terrible. So here's the apostle Paul preaching in Corinth that God is saving the world through a crucified Messiah, and a church forms, and then the next thing he knows, they're boasting about who's the best teacher in town. Here's Paul preaching a Jesus, the biggest failure in the world. God is saving the world through this failure, and here's a bunch of people trying to jockey for position, and who's better than who, who's more spiritual and who's more handsome. And and Paul's just like, uh, it's in the Greek. You can read it. There's this like apostolic, I can't believe you're fighting about this when you say you worship a crucified God. Now, the reason God wanted to crucify Jesus, and it was on purpose, was because God wanted to show how much wiser and powerful he is than people. Okay, did anybody watch, there was a football game last Sunday. Anybody watch that? I'm expecting at least one hand to go up. Thank you. Oh my goodness, everybody's like, if you put up your hand, it's dangerous. I didn't see it, but I was told that it was like the biggest Super Bowl comeback ever. What What was the spread at its worst? Andrew, do you remember? Okay, never mind. 
you got to be quick, is 28 to 3, which is an unrecoverable spread of points in a game usually, but it's never happened in the Super Bowl. And then something happened. People were eating their Wheaties at halftime or, or what. And then the team that was down, just those three points, the 25-point spread, they came back and ended up winning the game in overtime. Am I correct? Anybody want to correct me on that? Okay. And that comeback made it one of the greatest Super Bowl games ever. Am I wrong? Well, no, no, no. I think, I think if somebody was just honest, they would say, even though my team lost, that was a great comeback. That was worth watching. Because we love comebacks, okay? People love comebacks. When you go to watch a movie and it's a superhero movie, if the superhero never gets totally beaten up by the bad guy at the end so badly that you think he's dead, then it's just a boring climax, right? The, the hero needs to almost die. He needs to just get beaten up. And then the bad guy looks at his girlfriend and is like, I'm going to get her next. And then the, blah, the rage comes out and then it's all over. And it's like he's never been hit before and he's got all the energy and every Rocky movie ends like that. You know, round 10, Rocky's been hit in the face 15,000 times and then he it comes back with all the energy in the world. Which just Because those kinds of comebacks kind of say, look how awesome this hero is to come back from so bad. And this is what God was doing in Jesus. God looked over human history and said, I am going to subject my son to the most humiliating, derogatory, destructive, shameful failure ever. And through that failure, I am going to redeem the world and rescue my people and show everybody definitively just how wise and powerful I am. And so this is what God says in 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross, so the message of a crucified Messiah, is folly, it's foolishness, it's stupid, it's dumb, it's humiliating to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, and this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where then is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher? Sorry, I'm adding those ones. Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this is what God is saying, and this is what Paul is saying, and this is why boasting among Christians, one over against the next, and having groups is so ridiculous. He's saying, God designed the gospel to stumble the people that would hear it preached. It is designed so that when I get up and I say, the solution to all your problems is a Jew dangling off of a piece of wood in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you're supposed to think that's ridiculous. You're supposed to think that. Unless God has touched you by the Holy Spirit and caused you to see his wisdom in what he has done in his sight. But he has designed the gospel to be mockworthy and stupid and weak and dumb and bleh. That's by design. 
That's by design. So if you're ever talking to somebody and you're like, maybe I should tell them about Jesus, and you feel like, if I start telling them the truth about the gospel, they're going to think I'm an idiot. That's by design. It is an inescapable experience for people who are actually doing the work of talking about Jesus. And so Paul, in the passage we began with, says, I come to Corinth. And Corinth is a happening city. It is an L.A. It is a New York. This is where the hot people hang out to show how hot they are to the other hot people. This is where the smart people who are the ones selling the best books and the self-help stuff, their books are on the New York Times bestseller list. This is where they come to hawk their ideas, to sell their books, to make their money, to make their fame. This is where they come. And so all the Corinthians are in love with wisdom because all the important people are always coming to them to try to impress them with their wisdom. And all the people are passing through. This is the hot stuff city. And Paul comes into it and he's thinking to himself, all I've got is a cru- is preaching about a crucified Messiah. He doesn't have a, a hot worship team. Those are good, but he doesn't have one. He's got no Greg Friesen. He doesn't have a celebrity going before him trying to impress people. Like we like, you know, we really love it when celebrities say they're Christians. We're like, oh, finally, somebody important believes. Oh, goodness, this is wonderful. A celebrity says that they believe in Jesus. Now I can feel good about myself. He doesn't have any celebrity star power getting up there giving his testimony. He doesn't have anything except raggedy clothes and scars on his back and hope in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as he's coming into this hot stuff city and he's feeling the pressure to impress, he's feeling the pressure to stir up pride and to um, make people feel impressed with him, he goes, I am going to hate this. And so I am going to sin against this desire for position, this desire for pride, this desire of one person against the next, and I am going to purpose in my soul to know nothing except for Jesus and him crucified. He says, when I preach, I'm going to forget the fact that I grew up in Tarsus, which was a university town. It's like an Oxford or Cambridge. He was an well-educated guy in pagan philosophy. He's going to forget the fact that he spent time being trained by Gamaliel, which was like the most famous rabbi of his time, and he excelled in that school. And he says, I'm going to forget everything I've learned. I'm going to forget all my skills. I'm going to forget everything but Jesus Christ and his shameful, hate-filled, crucifixion I'm going to despise it and I'm going to embrace the folly of just preaching a killed Messiah so that if anybody believes everyone will know it's, by, it's because of the power of God and that alone he says, I, w- I want your confidence not to be in how slick I was I want your confidence not to be in the celebrity endorsement. I want your confidence to be in one thing and one thing only, the risen Jesus Christ and His power experienced by you today. That's what, he, that's what he was boasting for. That's what he was aiming for. And he goes even farther in this kind of mini-crusade he has against 
Christian proud comparison and adopting a worldly view of people that compares and jockeys and positions and forgets about the power of God displayed in the shame of the cross. He goes after them as individuals. Okay, so first he was going against the the desire to be wise and now he attacks the church. Some of you are like, yes, this is going to be awesome. I love scriptures that attack the church. He's doing it in love. He's trying to save them, which is usually not what people on Facebook are doing when they attack the church. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers. So think about who you are. Think about what you were doing when you got saved. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, okay, guys, you're, you're jockeying, you're comparing, you're wanting to look good, you're wanting to feel good, you're wanting to come off across as awesome, you're wanting to sound wonderful. What were you doing when you got saved? He's like, you know, you over there, um, Sisyphus, I just made that up. What were you? I was a slave. And are you still a slave? Yeah, still a slave. So you're a pretty important person, eh? No. And he's just going through the church. So you're royalty? Nope. So are you the governor? No. How about you? You a university professor? No. People paying you a lot of money to come speak at their 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 houses? No. And he's just going through the <laughs> like, listen, church, we're all a bunch of nobodies here embrace it. That's what he's saying. Embrace your inner nobody. Because God's on a mission in the world. He is on mission to destroy all human boasting. All of it. All. A-L-L. Capital A dot, capital L dot, capital L dot. All human boasting. And one of his strategies for doing this is that he sends an apostle into a city And he's looking around the city. This is God, not the apostle. And he's saying, who are the losers? Who's despised around here? Okay, that person's really despised. Oh man, people treat them terrible. I'm going to save that one. And then I'm going to turn them into a child of God. And I'm not going to do it for these proud people over here. Okay, who else is really despised? Oh, there's a bunch of slaves here. Man, they get treated terribly. I'm going to save them. Bring them in. Oh, and their masters? Not so much. Okay, I'll pick one. I'll pick one master because he's the despised master among the masters. But most of those masters, they're too arrogant. I'm not going to bring them. And the word of God is actually saying that salvation is strategic. Amen? Like salvation is strategic. God picks the lowly to embarrass and humiliate the proud. That's amazing. And what it's partially saying is the same. Rob, do you have a master's degree? Yeah. God's saying, you're really lucky to be saved. Like, everyone's lucky. You're really lucky. Because I don't usually pick know-it-alls like you.
I'm not, I'm, this is what the Bible's saying. And so Paul is saying, don't, 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 don't suck into your soul's worldly comparison because you're not even in the church because you're in the church because you were doing such a bad job in the world. Many of you, not all of you, many of you. Hello? Amen? Amen? Sorry. Sorry, self-esteem. Some, some, some people's self-esteem. I, so this is what was going on in this church. And I'm not preaching this message in particular because I think that we're being torn apart by factions or because I think that people in general are trying to one-up menship each other. Um, I think the, one of the big things why this is a burden of mine is that because it is so easy in the church in the West to forget that the cross is the center of everything. And it is the lens through which God is looking at everything and we're called to do the same. And it is the most important event that will ever happen. Like 2017 is not that important of a year. 33, that was the year when the Christ was executed and raised from the dead. That was, that was when the important stuff happened. This is just the cleanup. This is just God applying what he did. This is just God fulfilling all of his promises to Christ to get for himself a reward for his sufferings. This is not the biggest stuff. Um, so for instance, uh, that mass killing that happened a couple weeks ago, uh, I've, I've heard a lot of comments about it. I've heard, read a lot of news stories about a lot of people saying things. And one thing I hadn't, and, and people, you know, are talking about uh, why it's so bad. And uh, some people think that it's so bad because it's like a sign that Canada's deeply racist and, and every Canadian wishes they had a gun so that they could go and mass murder certain minority groups. Some people talk like that. I don't think it's true. Um, some people think it's terrible because... Um, you know, it's just more gun violence. Um, some people think that the worst part about it is all the mourning that's going on and the families that are now without dads and husbands. And that's true. It's just unspeakably painful. But looking through the cross, the worst part of what happened two Sundays ago is that six people entered into an eternity without Christ. No one to cover their sins no one to secure their adoption as children of God, no one to rescue them. They went to their creator to give an account for all the sins of this life, and they will find no mercy. That's the worst part of what happened. People died without Christ. That's the worst part. We can go through almost anything in life as long as you're going to go to be with Jesus, it will be okay. But one of the painful truths is that a violent death or painful death is not the forgiveness of sins. And it can go from bad to worse. The only thing that makes anyone right with God is the crucified Son of God and faith in Him and trust in Him. And that's seeing the world through the cross. That's the issue. Islamophobia is not the issue. The issue is the cross. 
do you have the blood of Christ covering you? Do you know God through Jesus? And is the crucifixion the most wonderful thing you've ever seen or heard about? Because it is the wisdom and the power of God to you. If it's not the wisdom and the power of God to you, you, don't, you, don't, you haven't seen Jesus yet, as he truly is. And that's the most critical thing in any person's life. We are surrounded by eternal souls, people who will exist forever. This life is very, very short. And all the money and the pleasure in the world is, is no compensation for entering into eternity with no Christ. That's just one area of life where I feel like I am pressured to forget the cross. And like the Apostle Paul, our response is supposed to be, when I am pressured to forget the cross, I determine that that's all I'll know. And there's lots to talk about in the Christian life. There's the Christian life in marriage. There's the Christian life in parenting. There's the Christian life in financing. There's the Christian life in friendships. There's the Christian life in driving your car. There's the Christian life in running a business. There's a Christian life in being an employee for somebody. There is not one thing a human being can do that God doesn't talk about in his word and address and make some part of the Christian life. And it's really easy to find something to occupy all your attention and we can forget about the cross. And so... My burden this morning is to just look at Paul and just be like, Paul, you are an amazing Christian. So bold, beyond the boldness of almost anybody I've met. So willing to be hurt again and again and again for Jesus. Expecting that his life would end violently for the name of Jesus, which it did. And here he is saying, in my heart of hearts, church, I tremble and I fear, and I'm full of weakness. And in response to my weakness, I redouble my efforts to know nothing except for my crucified Lord and depend on the preaching of that word and not human wisdom. That's amazing to me. That just stuns me. That just floors me, guys. And so for me, I'm just, I'm meditating on this, and I think that this does change everything, okay? Because so many of the most powerful things that we are called to do as Christians are humiliating and weak things. Take forgiveness, for instance. Forgiveness is a weak thing. To let somebody go scot-free who's wronged you when you have a right to justice, that is, feels like weakness. And in fact, forgiving deep pain and forgiving big stuff to do it can feel like you're dying. It can feel so impossible. Like, if I am going to let go of this, it will be like a suicide because I will just, I can't let go. But then we turn and we look at Jesus Christ in his crucifixion on the cross in the Gospel of Luke being told that while he was in his suffocating agony, he is praying to his Father saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And so for us, through the cross, knowing that weakness is power and foolishness is wisdom, we embrace forgiveness as Christians, knowing that it is actually one of the most powerful things a human being can do, is to forgive somebody else when you've been wronged. It is one of the most powerful things in eternity that can happen. Take another example of confessing your sin. 
Um, I'm waiting for the politician who will announce their run for presidency with a long list of every bad thing they've ever done. I just think it would be so brilliant. If you just kind of said, yeah, I'm running for president, here's every bad thing I've ever done. You can just, it's right there. Names, dates, witnesses, videotape, YouTube channel. It's, it's all there. Okay, now let's just move on. They'll never do it because it cuts against the grain of the world, which is do bad things and hide it. Okay? Be weak, but never talk about it. When you fail, kill, steal, and destroy in order to get rid of the witnesses. That's, that's the way of the world. Don't admit it. Don't talk about it. Don't go there. Move on. Forget about it. But in Christ, because of the cross, we know that actually the confession of sin is the most, one of the most powerful things anyone can do. To come to God with a brother or a sister and say, God, I sinned, and this is what I did, and I sinned, and this is what I did, and I sinned, and this is what I did, and I have nothing to look forward to except that your blood shed on the cross has purchased for me your forgiveness and mercy and love. It is ridiculous. It is a weakness. But through Jesus, it is the power of God. It is one of the most powerful things a human being can do is in faith confess their sin. It's liberating. It's holy. It is life-changing. It, it is... But, but we don't like it because we forget what Jesus is like. Um, so I'm starting this... Uh, we're doing this Conquer series starting this week. I think actually Thursday night is full, but if people are interested in doing more, we'll make more time for it. It's more important that we, it's important we do this. And uh, pretty much it's going to be a bunch of guys watching videos and then talking about their immorality, sharing about it, confessing it, talking about the heart motivations, why they do it, talking about the ways that they try to lie about that, what they've done. And I'll tell you this, I'm just not looking forward to it at all. It's going to be so raw. It's been one of the major sins in my life. It's going to, be, it's going to just be unpleasant many times. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, it is going to be some of the most powerful times that happen in Calvary Chapel in 2017. I kid you not. Because confessed sin in the presence of Jesus is the power and wisdom of God. And I could go on. But what we're called to do is to see afresh that the cross is the start of every Christian thing. There is no Christian marriage except that it is based around the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no Christian parenting unless it is done underneath the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no Christian finances unless every dollar bill is nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I could go on. It's about the cross. It's about the cross. It's about the cross. It's about the cross. Jesus really has turned the world upside down. And as, as I bring this to a close, I want to talk about pain and guilt and shame, which are probably the three most controlling factors in any, any human life, pain and guilt and shame. And I want to say this to you. Because of who Jesus is on his cross, his death and his resurrection, 
pain is changed. Pain is one of the most holy ways to commune with Jesus Christ. He didn't just get hit by a bus. He was tortured, flayed, struck about the head, pierced around his crown with thorns, impaled in three or four places on his body and hung until dead. Few human beings have hurt like Jesus. And when they offered him that sponge full of wine and myrrh, which would alleviate his pain, he said no. He did the childbirth with no no spinal tap. If you did that, that's fine. But I'm just saying, he, he said yes to the pain so that every Christian could come and worship with him and see that the wisdom and power of God is to fellowship first with Jesus in our pain. And yes, he is the best healer ever and he will take you out of your pain. But first we have to know him in it and fellowship with him in it and worship him in it. Many of us feel shame for what we've done, perceived failures, criticisms we've had. Shame is not wanting to know who we really are, not wanting other people to know who we really are, being afraid of other people finding out who we are. Shame is feeling naked. And Jesus Christ was crucified naked in front of his mocking enemies. He was naked. I know that the Catholic statues always put a little loincloth on him. Do you really think that the Romans let him have a little bit of dignity while they were murdering him? The point was to humiliate him. He was naked. And I think that's one of the main reasons why the women were standing afar off during it. It was just there's three naked guys getting hung. Jesus took the worst shaming that the world had to offer. He swallowed it up on his cross so that each one of us in our shame could come to Jesus and fellowship with him in it and worship him in it. And Jesus knows how to honor people. Jesus knows how to take shame away so powerfully and completely you'll think you've never even had any. He knows how to do that. But first, we need to fellowship with Jesus in our shame because he was crucified in shame. And that's where the wisdom and the power of God is and guilt. Guilt is the feeling of uh, having done wrong. You broke a rule, you've done wrong. And you want to get out of it so bad. That's where you, uh, you want the witnesses to disappear. You want to burn the evidence. You want to run away. You've done wrong. Jesus Christ was executed by the state as a criminal. And in heaven, God was heaping on him all the sins of his people. Dying for the sins of the world. He died so Guilty. He was condemned as guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. So that every guilty feeling heart could come to God through Christ and find not condemnation, but the power and the wisdom of God and be totally justified for all your sins and declared righteous by faith, not because of what you have done as though it could be by works, but as a free gift of love by a merciful God. It's, it's, 
And so He can take all your guilty feelings away, but first we need to know Christ. Do you know what I mean? Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm trying to say before we want to get better, we need to see the beauty of Jesus. Before we want to feel better, we need to see the glory of God in the cross, in the cross. Guys, if Jesus were crucified before us, a third of us would have been wanting him to be crucified because he makes us feel guilty with his holiness. A half of us or a third of us would have just been running away because we couldn't bear to look at it. And a third of us would have just been paralyzed with fear, unable to try to stop it. And God says that this moment when all human strength and wisdom is obliterated is the best thing I will ever do. So learn to love it. And pray that God would open your eyes to see his wisdom and his power in it. Corinne, why don't you come forward? Just as Corinne is beginning to play the music and we can join in worship in a second, I just want to say... If you are holding back from God, isn't it because you're angry about your pain or you're hiding in your shame or you're worried about your guilt? Isn't that true? And if it's true that the best thing God ever did for us is to send His Son to take the worst kind of pain, endure the worst kind of shame, and to bear the worst kind of guilt, shouldn't we come? Shouldn't we come to that Jesus on his cross and raised from the dead? And shouldn't we say, I want to be with you? If you have already gone through the worst of everything I fear, let me walk with you. Take me. And I tell you, friend, as surely as Jesus was raised from the dead, God will accept you as you put your faith in his crucified son. Hell and death and armies and pain and shame and guilt cannot keep God from having you if you will come and just lay your eyes of faith on his son, Jesus. That's all. You just have to look to him. You just have to look to him. You just have to look to him and nothing can keep God from having you because it's his power and his wisdom that he wants to display in your life. He will have you as a trophy of grace forever and ever. Father, I just thank you. Friends, why don't you stand with me? You can join me as I pray. Father, we just give you ourselves. Father, I, I give you my heart. I, I want to learn to love the cross. Father, I'll tell you the truth. I hate pain so bad. And I'm afraid of shame so deeply. God, I look to the cross. My God my Savior suffered by your will to, to capture my soul 
to open before me your fatherhood forever in eternity. And so, Lord, with my mouth, and I pray by grace, my soul will follow behind. I think the sufferings of Christ are beautiful. Father, I declare the pain and the shame and the guilt of Christ beautiful and glorious. And Father, if you would enable me and any other willing heart to see that the pains in our lives and the shame that we fear and the guilt that we feel can be beautiful too by bringing them to Jesus. It can be awesome and powerful and wise as we come to the Lord through faith. God, would you make this so? Father, I confess I feel so much pressure by the world to forget the cross and to look to politics and to look to education and to look to money. It's always money, 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 money. No, we don't need money. We need the cross of Jesus Christ preached and proclaimed in word and deed. Do this, Father. Do this for your glory, Lord Jesus. Lord, forgive your people where we are afraid and trembling. And instead of being like Paul and doubling down on the cross, we have turned to other things to look acceptable and winsome. Father, forgive me first. And do your holy work amongst us. Give us your spirit. Demonstrate your power. Father, I have taken my time in my mind and I have known nothing but Jesus today and his shameful crucifixion. And so, Father, it's your turn to demonstrate the spirit and the power of God. Amen.